At the beginning of our series that we've been in now for the last four weeks, I mentioned that Martin Luther, the great reformer, said of Romans 3, 21 and through 26, through that passage, he said that it is the chief point and the very central place of Paul's whole epistle to the Romans and of the entire Bible. He said that because that passage, Romans 3, 21 through 26, contains three words that capture and communicate all the hope and powerful reality of the gospel. It's all contained in that passage. Last week, we talked about two of those words, the Bible's best words. We talked about justification, which has the, the picture or the image of a, of a courtroom setting where a judge's gavel is, is hit, but instead of being declared guilty, the person before him is pardoned, declared innocent, even though they, by all rights, should be guilty, pardoned, free, justification, declared right. Specifically, the sinner declared righteous in the sight of holy God. That's justification. It's a good word. We also talked about redemption. That redemption is the ransom price, a very high price, paid to set either prisoners of war free or slaves purchased out of slavery at a slave market. Redemption ransom. It's what goes along with justification. The way we are able to be justified is because we are redeemed, because a price is paid to free us from the slavery of sin. It's another great word. Now, as we wrap up this series, we're going to talk about the payment, the payment that made our justification and redemption possible. The payment that made all that possible. To be justified, there needed to be a ransom paid. Well, what was that payment? What was the price? What was the cost? We're going to be talking about that today, right now. That's the third of the Bible's best words that's contained in this passage in which this series focuses on. It's a word we don't use often, um, hardly ever, but it's, it's such a rich necessary, essential word, and it's one for all of us to know. The word is propitiation. Propitiation. There will be a quiz afterwards to see how many of you can say that accurately. Not really. wouldn't do that to you. Propitiation. It comes from the Greek word, hilasterion, and that word means a, a removal has taken place. It's the removal of of God's wrath toward the sinner because a legal demand has been met. All of this, as you have gathered, no doubt, is, is very transactional in nature. Justification, redemption, now propitiation. It's very transactional. It's, it's very legal in its implications. So propitiation, helisterion, is the removal of God's wrath toward the sinner, which is right. It's fair. It's just that the wrath of Almighty, Holy God would rest on rebellious, sinful man. It's right. It's proper. It's actually a legal 
um, correct thing. It, it's, it's binding and it's, it's, uh, it's appropriate. But what propitiation introduces is the fact and the reality that that right wrath of God can be, has been removed. It's been removed. The legal demand for His wrath and judgment has been met, and it's been satisfied by means of sacrifice. Atonement has been made. Some of your translations uh, as we look into this passage together, we'll no doubt word this as atonement, or the atoning sacrifice has been made. It's still the same Greek word. It still applies. That's what's taking place. Propitiation, it's the removal of God's wrath by means of sacrifice. That's the payment that is made to satisfy that legal demand that sits on every one of us which is why I have an image there of, of a ram or a lamb, because certainly I think we all know that throughout the Old Testament, the whole Mosaic law and the Old Testament system under the Old Covenant, it all revolved around sacrifice. A spotless lamb would be sacrificed in place of the people, symbolizing, because it wouldn't actually provide, but it would symbolize atonement, that was necessary for the people, for their sins, to atone for their sins, to symbolize that only through sacrifice could man, sinful man, be right with a holy God. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see that again and again and again. A sacrificial system that was picturing propitiation. It was a temporary propitiation pointing ahead to what a permanent propitiation would be, a promised one. And for us to really understand how precious a truth propitiation is, we first need to understand how much God really hates sin. How much God really hates sin, because He does. Because He must. He must. Romans 1.18 tells us this, and uh, I'll be reading this from the ESV. In fact, uh, all the, the references today that, that I uh, either read or, or point to will be from the ESV. Romans 1.18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God a holy God, a perfect God, who can never do or be anything but perfect and, and have perfection, right in all of His ways, holy, just, proper, all the time. He can't be anything but perfect and holy at all times because if for one second He deviated from that, He would cease to be God. He has to be always holy, always perfect, always righteous, and indeed He is. So that means then the wrath that He has that is on display that's been revealed, the wrath, don't think of it like the wrath that you and I so often have or unfortunately are capable of, where our wrath, our display of wrath or anger is most of the time not holy, 
not righteous, not good. Most of the time, our expressions of wrath or anger, it's all about me, right? It's me. It's, it's I feel wronged. I feel uh, that there's been an injustice done. Me, me, me. My, my, my. We're like those, those seagulls on Finding Nemo. Mine, mine, mine. Like, and when, when we don't get what we feel is mine, we get really angry. We get upset. Very, very rarely, I mean, very small percentage of the time, our anger might be righteous anger. I mean, we're, we're capable of it. It's just that we don't often operate under righteous anger. Most of the time we operate under selfish or self-serving anger. Not so with God. When God displays wrath, it is just as perfect and righteous as any of His other attributes, any of His other characteristics, any other of His displays. You need to understand that. You're with me on that? Are you in agreement with that? I hope you are, because that's what we need to all understand and agree together about. So the wrath of God, holy, righteous, perfect, like everything else about Him, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, which is everybody, who by their unrighteousness thought and acted, conscious, unconscious, all the unrighteousness that we, we have that is in us and that we, we exhibit and we act on, it suppresses the truth. Whose truth? What truth? The truth of God. His truth, which is the only truth there is, by the way. So not only does our unrighteousness offend the holiness of God, it suppresses His truth. So He's got to do something about that. That can't just be okay with Him. And what we need to understand about how much God really hates sin, I need you to get this, and so I want to suggest to you this, this statement which is absolutely true, the depth of God's hatred for sin matches the depth of His holiness. The depth of God's hatred for sin matches, it's equal to, the depth of His holiness. So, how deep does God's holiness go? There's no way we could ever estimate it. There's no way we could ever calculate it. His holiness is His very essence. He is what holiness is. At His very core, He is holy. So there's no end to His holiness. There's no way of of measuring it. It is limitless, and it's eternal, and it's constant, and it's pure. It is the source of... He is the source of all other holiness. Which means His holiness must go pretty far, right? It goes pretty deep. It's pretty pretty deep into His character and who and what He is. Well, His hatred for sin matches that. So that means as much as we, by God's grace, might hate sin, which is possible and indeed required, by the way, for every believer. If you're in Christ, you need to hate sin. I need to hate sin. But our hatred for sin will never go to the level that God's hatred for sin is. He hates sin because He is holy and because of how much He is holy. 
He is the exact, infinite opposite of sin. Therefore, he hates it with a holy hatred. You're with me? Which also means not only can we never hate sin as much as God, but we, that means we ourselves, apart from God, will never hate sin enough. We'll never hate sin enough unless God gives us the ability to do so, unless He gives us His holiness and allows us to hate sin the way He does. For us to hate sin the way He does, we have to view it the same way He does. And we have to pursue His holiness so that we will also have a holy hatred for sin like He does. See how that all fits together? So the depth of God's hatred for sin matches the depth of His holiness. Just like I said earlier in the series, we, we, we don't sin uh, and, and therefore that makes us sinners. We sin because we are sinners. I've said that in, earlier in the series. It's the same thing here. God hates sin and must hate sin because He is holiness and because of how holy He is. So what does that mean? Well, that means that he can't condone sin. He can't say, oh, that's all right. I mean, after all, you're just human. That's just the way you are, you cute little thing, you. He can't condone it. He can't say, that's okay. I'll give you a pass. He can't ignore it. La, 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 I don't hear sin. I don't see sin. (laughs) No, that's not what God does. There's no rug that God lifts up and sweeps sin under. He can't. His holiness, His justice, His righteousness demands that sin be dealt with, that He deals with it, that He judges it. Because He is a holy, perfect, non-biased, just judge. He's the judge of all mankind. Because after all, He is the source of all that's right and good. He is the standard, and He sets the standard of what holiness and righteousness is. Therefore, He alone is qualified and required to judge it. If He didn't, He would cease to be just, and He would cease to be holy, which means He would cease to be God. You see that connection, the way that works? But God also so loved the world. So God hates sin and must judge sin because He is holy. That's an absolute fact and 100% part of His character and what it means to be God. But God so loved the world, which is full of sin and every Thing that God must hate. Feel that tension? Do you feel that? God who hates sin also loves the world full of sin. God must judge sin which the world is full of, and yet He loves the world. There's a tension there. And in Romans 3.23-26, we see both of those facts. We see the tension, but we also see what God does about it. 
We also see what he does to resolve the two opposing realities. Because they are opposing realities. Hatred for sin, love for the sinner. Opposing realities, attention. And we see both on display, and we we more importantly see what God does about it, how he resolves that tension. So look at me, or look with me, please, at Romans 3 23 through 26. Romans 3 23 through 26. And again, I'll be reading from the ESV translation. We've looked at at, uh, two of these verses in detail already in the series, but we're going to go back and look at it again because it it uh, is part of the overall context, and it's so important to understand and to remember. So Romans 3.23, God's Word says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, we spent time talking about that. Remember, it's missing the mark. The mark, the target of God's holiness, His perfection, His righteousness. No matter what we might do, we aim, we try to hit that mark, that that mark of of holiness and righteousness and perfection. No matter what we do, no matter how much we strain, we miss it every time. No matter how good we might be, we still miss the mark. We fall short of His glory that we lost in the garden. And we can't restore it by ourselves. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here's the good news. Here is one of those, those best words. Verse 24, and are justified, declared righteous. Those, all of us who who sinned and fell short of God's glory, of His righteousness, of His right standard, we still are able to be declared righteous. How? By His grace as a gift. Something undeserved, unearned. Not something we worked for or or could work for. Something He did and gave us outside of ourselves are justified by His grace as a gift. How? By what means? Through the redemption. There's that ransom that was paid. A price of freedom. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See, the the rest of John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave, gift, He gave His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus. That whoever believes in Him, in Jesus, should not perish, should not have to taste eternal death, should not perish, but will have everlasting life. So, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, and here's here's the central text of what we're going to be looking at today, the last of these best words, whom God put forward as a Propitiation. Helisterion. Removal of God's wrath because the sin that stained us all and the righteous demand of a holy and righteous God on that sin has been met. A sacrifice is made and accepted and the wrath of God is appeased. It's met. It's satisfied whom God put forward as a propitiation. How? What's the payment? By His blood. By the blood of Jesus. That's why we sing, nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away my sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can make me whole again. It's by His blood. Innocent, perfect, holy blood. 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was, why did God do this? Why did it have to be done this way? Look at, look at the rest of this verse, 25. This was to show God's righteousness. In other words, it had to point to His righteousness, His holiness, His justice, His perfection, that, that part of His character that cannot be compromised. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. Then verse 26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just, which He is and has to be, and the justifier. This is the best news in all the Bible. So that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, who shed His blood, kind of like draw an arrow back, who shed His blood as the needed propitiation for our sins. So we've got that tension that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all unrighteous. We have suppressed the unrighteousness or the truth of God, and we are, we are offending His holiness, and therefore we are under His wrath and deserve to be. But God so loved the world. So the way this tension is resolved, the way it's met, is by, it's through the propitiation that Jesus provides. He is the payment that makes it all right. It preserves God's justice It preserves His holiness while making us right with Him and able to be in a relationship with Him. Only God could do that. Only only God could come up with a plan that would preserve His necessary justice and satisfy His necessary wrath while not pouring that out on us and giving us the way to be rescued from it all the way to freedom. That's what He did here. That's what's on display. And that's what propitiation is all about. That's why propitiation is such a big deal. It's how God the Father is able to justify, declare right, and redeem, rescue sinners, you and me, making us new creations, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. That's how that happens. It's how he's able to take rebellious, unrighteous sinners to redeem them and make the new creations and adopted children. And he's able to do that without, without compromising his character and his holiness as it relates to sin. The propitiation of Jesus preserves the perfect justice and the perfect mercy of God. Isn't that glorious? And only God could do that. That's the gospel. And that's what propitiation makes possible. You and I, uh, we're not capable of that. Like we, we side with, with one side or the other. We we usually are either really heavy on justice, wanting justice to be done, as long as it's not to us, 
you know, like we're not the ones being called to justice, but we want justice. You know, we're, we're really either heavy-handed on justice and judgment. Oh, yeah, the, they're sinners. They're terrible. They're criminals. Judge them. Or we go the other direction and the other extreme, and we're, we're so heavy on mercy, 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 and compassion and grace that we don't leave room for necessary judgment. We, we usually go one direction or the other. We're, we're lopsided. God, because He is God, is 100% just and 100% merciful at the same time, all the time. And what He did through Jesus, this plan of redemption, specifically through the payment that is propitiation, He preserves both. And because He preserves both, and because His justice and wrath were poured out on Jesus, because He was the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice, that means we don't ever have to fear His wrath and judgment. Because it was put on Jesus in our stead. It's why I love the song Before the Throne of God, and it's why I I wanted us to sing that together Specifically, the line, my favorite line is, because the sinless Savior died, my guilty soul is counted free. For God the just was satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. That's the Gospel. That's propitiation. Do you see why it's such a big deal? See why it's such a great word? Indeed, one of the best words. Speaking of mercy, propitiation points back to the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant that was in the most holy place, first in the tabernacle and later in the temple. That's where the high priest would sprinkle the blood of the most special sacrifice for the people of Israel once a year on Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement. One time a year, the high priest would go in, he would sprinkle the blood of this most sacred sacrifice on the mercy seat, providing very temporary atonement because it had to happen every single year. Every year. But it was a picture pointing to Jesus and to the cross. It was a picture pointing to the once for all sacrifice of atonement. The one and only Savior that would sacrifice Himself, Jesus. The the only one that could fully and permanently satisfy the just, necessary wrath of the Father on sin. That means, church, that means that the cross of Christ, that means the cross of Christ was the ultimate mercy seat. And it's why John the Baptist proclaimed Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In John 1, he had his disciples there and he said, look, look, there he is. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away, removes the sin that God's wrath rests on. That's why he said that about Jesus. Because he was the atoning sacrifice. The Lamb, the the only Lamb, that could take away the sin. And the cross was the mercy seat that His blood was poured out on. 
This is another amazing aspect of propitiation, that the cross was also a place of a mutually undeserved exchange. And there's another big word I'm going to throw at you, okay? Double imputation. Not amputation. Make sure you put an I, not an A. But double imputation. It's what took place at the cross. It was an exchange. Again, transactional in nature. All of this is transactional. But it was a mutually undeserved exchange. There was a double imputation. Here's what I mean by that. On the cross, this is all part of propitiation. Jesus unfairly but willingly received our sin. All of our sin. All of our unrighteousness. The unrighteousness you were born into and received by Adam and Eve, and the unrighteousness that you chose as soon as you drew your first breath and on through till the time you die. We received it naturally and by rights, and we choose it willingly. Unrighteousness. But all of our unrighteousness was put on Jesus on the cross. Unfair, but He willingly received it. And the Father's wrath and judgment on that sin in our place. And that makes us able to receive, and here's the second part of the imputation, the the placing over that was unfair. That makes us able to receive Christ's own righteousness. Making us eternally righteous in God's sight. So Jesus on the cross, you see it over here, you see it on on our wall here. On the cross, think of Jesus being stretched out. Picture that. And in one hand, He's receiving all of our sin and all of the Father's wrath on that sin. And in the other hand, He's extending and giving to us His righteousness. His holiness. You see the exchange that's taken place there? It's mutually undeserved. He didn't deserve our sin, but He took it. We didn't deserve His righteousness, but He provides it. Second Corinthians 5.21 lets us know that. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake, you and me, the sinner, for our sake, He, the Father, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, Let me pause right there. We need to also understand that Jesus, who is God, He's not the same as the Father, but He is what the Father is. He is also God, fully God. Therefore, He hates sin just as much as His Father does. Which is why He willingly went to the cross. Because it was His wrath that He also had to satisfy. So we have God saving us from God to satisfy God. That's what the cross is all about. Jesus hates sin and wants it and has to have it dealt with just as much as the Father does. For our sake, He, the Father, made Him, Jesus, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin and therefore hated it just as much so that in Him, in Jesus, our propitiation, we, we might become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. See, here's what the cross shows us. 
The cross shows us it's actually a good thing that life isn't fair. The cross shows us it's actually a good thing that life isn't fair. Because if life was always fair, then none of us could be saved. Because what is fair for us is hell. That's what's fair. Travis downstairs asked me if it was a good day today, if I'm having a good day. And I said, oh yeah, I said, I have to think of what my dad says. His, his go-to statement is, every day out of hell is a good day. Can't argue with that. Makes it pretty hard to still be in a bad mood. Thanks, Dad. But no, I do thank, I do thank Dad because it's a good reminder. Because, see, that's what the cross makes possible. It's a good thing that life's not fair. We, we, we so often use that, well, life's not fair. That's not fair. It's not fair. And it's not limited to little kids. We adults are pretty good at pulling out the that's not fair card, right? We want everything fair. We want to be treated fairly. We recognize when something seems not fair. But it's a good thing that life's not fair because if it, if it was, if it was always fair, we would have no hope of salvation. So the cross shows that it's a good thing that life isn't fair. And we also see on the cross that Jesus paid a price he never deserved to pay so he could give us a life we will never deserve to have. Jesus paid a price he never deserved to pay so he could give us a life we will never deserve to have. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 say this, says this, verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, with Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses, How did he do it? Verse 14 tells us, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, not ignoring it, but this he was able to set aside, nailing it to the cross. In other words, because of the cross, the payment for all of our sin debt was paid by Christ, which allowed the Father to say, canceled. The debt that is theirs by rights has been canceled because it's been paid. That's what Jesus cried with his last breath on the cross. When on the cross he said, it is finished. The word, the literal word, the literal word there is to telestai. And it means payment in full. Because he made the payment in full for your sin and my sin that we could never, ever pay. That, my dear friends, that is why our salvation is secure. That's why justification is full and why we can trust it. It's because it's not tied to us or, or what we need to do or what we could possibly do. If, it were, if salvation were in any way up to us or tied to us, then we would be right to constantly fear losing it. We couldn't keep our salvation if it were in any way up to us. 
if we contributed anything to our salvation except the need for it, we would have, have no hope of being secure in it. But because our salvation, all of it, justification, redemption, it's tied to Jesus and what He did, propitiation, we can rest eternally secure in that salvation. Think about it this way. If, if the one who holds the stars in place, which is Jesus, if He's able to do that, then He's able to hold our salvation for us. He's able to hold us in His salvation. And that's what He does. So what does all that mean? Kind of summarizing, bringing it all in means that salvation is only free to us, which it is, because Jesus paid for it with His life. Salvation is only free to us because Jesus paid for it with His life. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the truth of it, the reality of it, the power of it. Thank You Thank you, thank you for justification, for redemption, all paid for by the propitiation that is in Jesus and Jesus alone. Thank you for being willing to pour out your just wrath and judgment on our sin, being willing to pour that out on your Son, in place of us, instead of us. Thank You, Lord Jesus, for being willing, though You are very God, and therefore hate sin as much as Your Father, for being willing, out of Your love for us, to receive our sin and the Father's judgment, and to give us Your righteousness and Your right standing with the Father. Thank You, Holy Spirit, for applying that work, that propitiation to our account, to our lives, sealing us for redemption and adoption forever. Thank you, our God. Only you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.